Rob Mouncey is a self-proclaimed music nerd, having taught himself classical music composition at the very early age of 11. With a natural passion for music, he earned his way into the Berklee College of Music in Boston, where he migrated his energy into the world of jazz, while studying with the likes of Gary Burton, among others. Fresh out of school, Mouncey briefly hit the road with the Tommy Dorsey Band, but decided life on a bus wasn't for him. A wise decision as his career as a studio musician and solo artist began to flourish. Settling in New York City, Mouncey went on to perform with and produce some of the biggest names in music, such as Paul Simon, Steely Dan, Eric Clapton, Madonna, Diana Ross, Ashford and Simpson, James Taylor, Michael Franks, Rihanna, and many more. But Rob Mouncey's career is expansive. Not only has he performed with the biggest names in the industry, he's also taken on projects for television and film, such as creating music elements for Sex in the City, and for films like Working Girl and Bright Lights Big City with Donald Fagan. He's a six-time Grammy nominee and has taken home two Emmys over the course of his career. And the good news is that with all of his successes, he's still as passionate as ever for his craft. Inside Music Cast welcomes the multi-talented Rob Mouncey. Hey Rob, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hey, Rob, your, your career in the music biz has really gone full circle, not one time, but a few times maybe, but, uh, uh, you know, not only touching composing and arranging and producing uh, for television and film, um, you know, you've worn so many hats over the years, uh, you know, you probably couldn't have planned that in the career, could you, as to how you can describe as to, uh, you know, what you've touched in your, in your career? No, no, you know, um, I think it was Alan Watts who used to say, uh, I don't want a career, I want a careen. <laughs> yeah, that's good. So uh, that's, that's kind of what I've done. I've just careened, um, which has been fine with me. It's, I, you know, I've been, been fortunate to, to get into some, uh, some wonderful stuff um, yeah. unpredictably. Yeah. You know? uh, so I, I never quite know what's happening next. I'm, just, I'm very grateful nowadays to just uh, still be part of it. It's, you know, the, the business has become so difficult for a lot of people. Right. And uh, I know so many uh, fantastic musicians who have uh, kind of dropped out or gone into a different line of work or, uh, you know, that have struggled so much. Um, I, you know, I'm just so happy to still be part of it. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I would say your work and your body of work that you're still doing, whether it's for uh, doing music for HBO's Sex and the City or, you know, uh, documentary work or TV production and that type of thing. But you, I can really describe your work as, as very versatile because if you back away and see the whole breadth, you think, holy cow, you, you, you really have a, a quite momentum, not only on one road, but on different avenues of music, mm-hmm. you know? Well, thanks. It's uh, you know, it's I don't I don't know if that's always the best thing or or not. Mm-hmm. You know, you tend to get be looked at a little bit as uh, jack of all trades, master of none, or um, you know, someone that can't be pigeonholed. Yeah, which I guess is maybe that's a good thing. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm more comfortable with that. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to mention that the first time I heard your name, the first time I knew it, I was I was in college, just around 1990 or 91, and uh, I worked at the college radio station. And you know, at the time, it was a news station. We were getting in all kinds of different kinds of music because we really didn't have a format. It was just kind of wide open, you know, different types of shows. And uh, whatever record company you were with at the time sent out a promotional copy of Dig. And uh, I looked at that, and I looked at the album cover, and I thought that is some cool artwork, you know. <laughs> and so, so I, had, I opened it up, and I, I wasn't—I honestly hadn't heard of you before. And I popped it in, and I thought this is one of the coolest albums I'd heard in a long time. I love that, and I still have oh, it. And I listen you. to it a lot. It's on my iPod and everything. 
<laughs> oh, thanks so much. Well, that's that's that was my little freak. That's a that's a pretty strange record, but um, yeah, especially what was the name of the tune? Green was it Green Feathers? Green Feathers. Yeah, right? I, I love that one. It kind of oh, had kind of had a mix of like an art of noise sort of uh, approach to it. Thanks. That's one of my favorites, actually. You know, I realize we're only uh, a few minutes into the interview, but uh, since we're on the topic of Rob's album Dig and that song Green Feathers, uh, let's take a break and let's give it a listen. Thank you. 
I know for a fact that many of our listeners here of Inside Music Cast know your music and know about you, but but maybe not particularly a lot about your background and, and uh, where you you know things like where you were raised and where you went to college and so on. And and I think you're you're from the Midwest, right? You were born in Ohio. Yeah, I was born in Ohio. I grew up partly in Seattle, Washington, mm-hmm. and then then in a couple towns in Ohio, mm-hmm. uh, Finley, Ohio, and Granville, Ohio, and then uh, uh, after that went to Berkeley and Boston. Findlay is a cool little town. I've been through there a few times. It's 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 very much uh, Main Street USA. Yeah, you know, it's, it's really it's a really it's flag city actually. Flags. That's right. It is flag city. Yeah, it's <laughs> flag city USA. People love to fly the flag. It's, you know, um, I, yeah, I lived there in you know uh, I think from age eleven to age sixteen or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then in Granville, Ohio, home of Denison University, down by Columbus. Yeah. Okay. And then, uh, then in, in you know in Boston, I was I was in school there and lived there for five years. Yeah. So while you were growing up there, I mean, uh, um, who was the musical inspiration in your family? I mean, I know we've read a little bit about the bio, but uh, you know, how did it lead up to uh, to your musical interest, and how was your family connected to that to music? It's they they weren't really. Uh, my father claims to be tone deaf. I'm, I'm not <laughs> sure. I'm not sure there is such a thing actually, but. Uh, um, actually, I, ha- I have an older sister who's eight years older who was in college yeah. when I was uh, about 11. And uh, she's not a musician at all, but she took a music appreciation course where she came home with some little green Calmus miniature orchestra scores. You know, you've, you've probably seen those. Yeah, yeah right. She, they were learning just to um, follow along in orchestra scores as they listened to classical music. Right. So I, I inherited those and... Um, Kind of learned to read music by by reading those. I, mm-hmm. I had there were really just two of them. There was the Mozart Jupiter Symphony, which I think is uh, number f- number forty or forty one. Forty forty one or forty. I'm I'm rusty here. <laughs> and the other one is uh, the Berlioz Fantastic Symphony. Oh sure. Which is you know real paint pot kind of stuff with every possible extra instrument in the world. And yeah. <laughs> So I and they were tiny, you know, these little miniature things. So I, I <laughs> sat at a little electric organ that we had and learned to to read music from those. Mm-hmm. And then basically uh, decided, um, you know, I think I could do this. You know, I, <laughs> I, see, I see how it's all laid out. You know, woodwinds at the top, the strings are at the bottom. There's some brass, and you know, I, I um, started ascending away for the Rimsky-Korsakov orchestration manual and and. <laughs> That kind of stuff, and there was nobody around to tell me that I couldn't do it. Yeah, yeah. You know, there was nobody around to say, "Oh, you you got to go to a conservatory for that. You'll never learn that on your own." Mm-hmm. So, um, so there I was, a little little uh, music nerd, um, you know, studying how to how to write orchestra music, yeah. and it just started started learning by doing, which is that's a pretty strange kind of background. I mean, you know, most of the musicians that I grew up and started working with, they were in garage bands where they had, you know, Stratocasters in the garage. They were playing <laughs> surf music and stuff. They right. came from that side. and um, So I was, you know, I was just a little, uh, just a skinny, bookish little kid trying to be Stravinsky. And you are breaking down Mozart in the garage, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> right. That's well, you know, and it's all, but then, you you know, you grow up and it all, it all you see that it really all comes together. Mm-hmm. Well, like they say, the nerds will inherit the earth. <laughs> <laughs> they did, yeah. I mean, kids that were, uh, you know, real, uh, real strange kids uh, you know, often grew up to do some wonderful stuff. So that, you were about, what, 10 or 11 years old, I think, at the time when you started diving into this classical music? Is that right? Yeah, 
Yeah, that's right. So is that around the age you started playing piano, or, or did you discover, I mean, is, is that when you we, actually started no. playing? Well, we didn't even really have a piano. We had a little electric organ, and we had little, um, these little uh, home organs, like uh, a con organ. You know, they used to have the Lowry organs. Uh-huh. They'd have these buttons for surf sounds, and they had all kinds of weird yeah. <laughs> gizmos. And, uh, and we, we had a few of those. I, we never really had a piano in the house. Okay, all right. But I, I uh, just started playing by going out to the local colleges and invading the uh, re- rehearsal rooms and stuff. And, yeah. I, I, you know, I mostly played so that I could hear the stuff I was writing. Really? That was the main reason. So, I, you know, I, I always felt more like a writer than a player. Yeah, mm-hmm. I follow you. And I got, you know, but I got to the place where I, I felt like I was, I was playing well enough to, to make myself happy. And, and uh, if I was lucky, make a few other people happy, too. So, well, so, so at that early age, though, you, you were actually, you began writing your own classical compositions. Is that right? Not just playing yeah. them, but you were actually composing yes. your own. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, it's a strange, yeah. It's a, it's a it's an unusual way to to start out doing and, and with really no instruction, no professional instruction or anything right. in school, correct? Right. Wow. Most mostly from um, from uh, textbooks that I would get mail order, mm-hmm. and, and then you know studying, trying to pick up uh, sheet music and other scores, and just studying anything I could find. So yeah, you, <laughs> it, was a, it was. It's a weird way to 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 be self-taught. It's a strange thing to try to be self-taught in. Well, music was was definitely part of you just right yeah. away. But obviously, you discovered it, and and it was just deep within you. And there it was. It just came I, out. I, <laughs> well, it yeah, for me. I guess so. I guess so. And you know, I have a philosophy about that. That music really belongs to human beings. I, you know, it's it's not so much. Um, uh, a special badge uh, to to pin on people. People don't really have to be such specialists. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not quite sure what I'm trying to say here, but really, yeah. that you know, I, I really have a belief that human beings are innately musical, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and that most people, practically everybody, could make some kind of music if you held a gun to their head mm-hmm. and told them you'd shoot them. I, I think Peter. <laughs> Peter Gabriel said something very similar to that in some in some interview, which I thought was very interesting. He said, "You know, a lot of people don't think that they're creative people, but if they had to be, they could be because it's it's part of being human. Yeah, to express to express your you know your humanity in that way. Yeah. Well, listen, I have a question from our, we have a correspondent uh, in Germany. His name is Uwe Reith, who uh, asks a question pretty much. He says a lot of musicians uh, are naming classical composers as inspiration or musical source of uh, of, uh, of inspiration. What are your uh, you know classical um, you know influencers? Uh, well, believe it or not, one of the, the big touchstone for me is Beethoven. Yeah, and uh, I listen all the time to. Especially to the Seventh Symphony, um, it's some wonderful stuff. It was given to me by a friend of mine. It's a um, uh, string. The strings, the strings of the Berlin Philharmonic, I think, playing the string quartets, some late quartets, which are really, really, really musically stunning. And you listen to the late quartets, and it's so uh, fascinating how. Uh, iconoclastic they must have been at the time how revolutionary they were and how shocking you know uh, harmonically and uh, kind of formally Um, 
so it's you know it, I don't know he's uh, you know Beethoven's always really thrilled me listen yeah. to those if you if you listen to it in the context of the, the time mm-hmm. you can kind of you hear him make some very very take some really strange harmonic left turns and you kind of see Mozart going dude <laughs> yeah you know what I mean? <laughs> are you sure you want to do that uh-huh. no um, so that's that's kind of wonderful. I mean, beyond that, um, you know, I've been very interested in a lot of 20th century composers like Stravinsky and Olivier Messiaen and, and uh, uh, Bartok and uh, Prokofiev, yeah. mm-hmm. Shostakovich. Sure. Um, a lot of people that are not necessarily... Uh, not necessarily the guys that the, that the serious concert music world necessarily holds in the highest esteem, but some of them are a little under, underappreciated, I think. Yeah. Well, you, you actually landed after, you know, a rather proficient, uh, you know, being a, a time where you were a teenager and mm-hmm. winning awards for composing, you ended up at Berkeley in 71 and, uh, right. and uh, sort of uh, you could have taken the classical path, but you changed to the jazz, right? I did. Yeah, I, uh, um, you know, I, I was a real classical music nerd as a little kid, mm-hmm. but um, then... Uh, you know, then there were then there were the Beatles, and then there were the Doors and the Stones, and the, <laughs> yeah. they ruined everything. Especially, uh, <laughs> I think, especially Sgt. Pepper's. Yeah, you know, it's right. really. I was, uh, I was, I must have been fifteen, I guess, when that came out. Yeah, and that kind of that kind of blew everybody's mind, especially stuff like uh, for the benefit of Mr. Kite. Yeah. Was a real favorite of mine with headphones and you yeah. know listening to all that crazy ear candy flying around. Me. <laughs> right. God, that must be fun. That must just be the greatest <laughs> be in the studio and make all this crazy stuff happen. So you know, I became really fascinated with uh, with studio um, technique and studio ideas and using the using the studio as a as a compositional tool and so forth. The way that. Frank Zappa got very interested in and all yeah. that stuff. Right. Uh, and then, of course, there was Bitches Brew. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which, yes. um, you know, remember I joined a, I had a little extra money. I finally got a, a summer job or something and I joined a uh, record club, the Columbia Record Club or something. Oh, yeah. I used to get LPs in the mail. For one penny. <laughs> oh, it thrilled me to death. I mean, it was, you know, it was so exciting. It, w- there wasn't the kind of access you have now. You just, it's a, like a, you know the press of a button on the internet, and it's all right there. But right, right. So in that days, we had to really hunt for that stuff. You had to hunt for what was really interesting to you, and it was hard to find. Yeah. So is that where you found a little bit of uh, Miles Davis there? Oh yeah, and I, I, I'll never forget putting Bitches Brew on, and it made absolutely no sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. <laughs> It go, you, you play that first twenty-minute side, and you yeah. have no idea what happened, but you know, but you know something happened, and you play it again, and it's something starts to happen with you, and yeah. by the by the time you heard, you've heard it maybe four or five times, you you get it, you get the whole thing, you can sing along to it, wow, it's and you understand what's going on, and those you know those Tio Macero edits and stuff, mm-hmm. um, they were just just fascinating to me, yeah. 
I know it, I, I was going to make a comment about what you were saying about uh, you know how we don't have access or we didn't have access to right. you know instant access like we do now. What I used to do is I used to go down to you know record store and they had those big catalogs, those big gold-paged catalogs, you know, and I would just, I'm sure the shop owners thought I was just a complete idiot because I'd go in there and I'd spend like an hour and a half or two hours just thumbing (laughs) through that thing, writing down notes about, you know, bands I wanted to hear. It's like, why why don't you have this album? Like, well, I can order it for you. I can get it here in a month. Yeah. (laughs) But Amazing. Yeah, yeah. It was that was such a different different time. Well, we were talking about Ber- your time at Berkeley, and I, I was just curious to know: Do you happen to remember any like key instructors at Berkeley that that made an impact on you? And I think I read somewhere that Gary Burton was actually one of your instructors. Gary Gary is wonderful. Um, he he's one of them. Herb Pomeroy was the famous writing teacher mm-hmm, there. Mm-hmm. Who just we just lost him a few years ago. Um, he was absolutely fantastic. Well, his 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 writing. Courses were really legendary, and uh, really opened everybody up, opened everyone's thinking up mm-hmm. about, about composing, arranging, and all that. Um, Gary was a, a teacher of mine for performance, just for you know small band performance and so forth. But um, was very uh, he was he was really really wonderful with that. Um, to, it's not easy for young musicians to really understand. Mm-hmm. That when you play in an ensemble, you know, even if you're just playing, say, in a rhythm section, I guess especially if you're playing in a rhythm section for a pop record, mm-hmm. that what you're really doing is you're not playing to make yourself sound good. You're, you're playing to make the whole band sound good. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. You know, while you were at uh, Ed Berkeley, um, did you start gigging around that time when you were still in school, or did you? Uh... Yeah, I did. I, I was. I was just working. I was just doing whatever I could. I was playing in bars. I was playing behind some singers. Um, I would. I played weddings. You know, weddings, yeah. bar mitzvahs. Sure. Yeah. You name it. All that stuff <laughs> that you do to uh, to just uh, you know make all your pocket money. Yeah. Um. And I ended up working with a with a local singer there named Ralph Graham, mm-hmm. who was a, a fairly big local star there. Uh, he was a very very emotional kind of a almost an R and B ballad singer really? who who wrote all his own material, and I would I would help him with that. And uh, he was signed to RCA Records in nineteen seventy five, I think. Okay. Um. And the uh, RCA was headed by uh, Neil Portnow at the time, who's now the head of Neris, now the head of the Recording Academy. Okay. He was a big guy at RCA, an A&R guy. And he, uh, he hired uh, Leon Pendarvis to produce his record. Uh, Leon Pendarvis, you know, is a wonderful arranger, keyboardist, uh, pianist, uh, producer. Mm-hmm. And he came up to Worcester, Massachusetts to, uh, to listen to Ralph and his band, uh, of which I was a, a part in the... He, he told Ralph, um, I'd like to produce your record. Don't bring your band. We'll, <laughs> we'll, <laughs> he said, we'll, we'll use New York guys. Uh, he said, if you want, you can bring that kid on the end. And I was, I was over there on the end. I was playing a, a, a Mellotron and an Arp Odyssey. <laughs> I don't know if you know those instruments. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. oh yeah. The Mellotron. What a what a monstrosity that thing was. It was, a, it was like a little white painted cabinet. Looked like a look. It looked kind of like a refrigerator you'd find in your mini bar in a hotel. Yeah. And it, and it ran on those little tape loops. Except they weren't loops. They were just strips. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. One for every note, and the little tape head would run down the note, and you had to keep moving your fingers. You couldn't play sustained chords. You had yeah. to keep lifting them up so the so the little tape head could could snake up the tape again. <laughs> and it sound it just sounded awful. We used to call it the buzz saw. I think at some point he had two Mellotrons on stage, uh-huh. and that weird little Arp Odyssey. And so anyway, I I. Uh, Came down to New York on the on the train, and I, I got to work with all these wonderful New York musicians. This was uh, late '76 or summer of '76, and uh, Leon Pendarvis invited me to move down. He said, "I you know I think you should move here, and I'll book you on my dates." And uh, that's what happened. Wow! So I, I owe it all to him. Interesting. After after you graduating, then um, I noticed that uh, you actually had uh, a pretty. Uh, substantial gig, but it was sort of short-lived. It was with the Tommy Dorsey band, right? Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Tell me about that that's quick right. thing. I hadn't graduated, actually. I almost didn't graduate. Really? I, I went back and graduated to, to make my parents happy. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it was Yeah, that was in November of 74. Yeah. Uh, and I knew a couple guys who, you know, that's, that's a big um, popular job, especially for horn players in the music schools. You know, they'll, they'll get on that band and it's Life on a bus, um, wearing those ridiculous jumpsuits and bow ties, and <laughs> it's it's really it was it wasn't I, it wasn't for me. I have to tell you. And that I, was the, that was the part you liked, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But there's also a downside. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it was. Uh, I, I think I was on the I was on the thing two weeks. I gave my no. I gave my two weeks notice after two weeks. So I was on the. <laughs> I was on the band for a month. Actually, I have to say it was a great. It was a. It was really great experience um, to do that. I wasn't. I. I couldn't live on a bus on the road like that. It was sure. A little too miserable, but um, it was a great experience to have. That's neat. So and, yeah, it's, it's all twenty and twenty-one year old kids. Yeah. The band leader was seventy-five, and he he picked up a singer to to uh, sing with the band who was also seventy-five, an old friend of his. Mm-hmm. So. Um, that's you can imagine. I, you know, it's it's uh, it's kind of crazy. Sometimes sleeping on the bus uh, in between towns, and, but in that month we went all the way through the South, up through Arkansas, you know, Indiana, Kentucky, Ohio, Michigan, up into Canada. Uh-huh. Um, you would not believe it. I mean, it was um, so many shows in it's just. I mean, just about you know thirty shows in thirty nights. Wow, that's that's insane. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard. And I was, I was just short of my twenty-second birthday, and I was—I felt like I was too old for it. Yeah. Wow, I, I just—I couldn't handle. It. Already worn out, huh? Yeah, right. <laughs> thirty thirty dates and thirty nights. I, I think that'd be especially tough on those horn players. Yeah, but you know they're tw- they're twenty-one years old. Yeah, that's true. They're—I they, mean, they feel totally invincible. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, and maybe they, and you know, some of those guys went on to do great things. Uh, during that month, um, at some point, we went through the Midwest, and the, the special guest uh, drummer was Jeff Hamilton. Wow. Mm-hmm. wow. Who, as you, as you know, I'm sure, you know, yeah. went on to be, the, you know, one of, the, one of the best known jazz drummers, and with the Clayton Hamilton Orchestra and all that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A wonderful, wonderful musician, wonderful guy. Let's pause one more time uh, because I want to hear a track from the Rob Mountie Project's Hallucination Box, which was released back in 2008. And this is the opening track to that album titled Airborne Toxic Event. (laughs) ¶¶ 
after uh, you settled down in New York, you actually, you know, started gigging quite a bit. Uh, yeah. And I want to move up just a little bit to 1981. And there was one very special show that happened uh, in Central Park on on, right. on that one day. And you know what I'm talking about. It's uh, it's when the recording of Simon and Garfunkel's uh, concert in the park. Right. And uh, the stage was loaded with some pretty serious players. You had Anthony Jackson, Steve Gadd, and uh, rest is uh, so uh, Richard T., Pete Richard. Carr. And uh, do you remember that uh, that that concert? <laughs> that's that's unforgettable. That's, that's uh, because it's uh, it's it's so famous. You know, it's um, yeah. you know. I been, yeah, I had been working a lot with uh, with Phil Ramone for a while, mm-hmm. um, and I I had been working also with uh, both with Paul uh, Simon and with Art Garfunkel. Yeah, uh, I actually spent some time in L.A. living there, working on an Artie Garfunkel album called. Um, uh, fate for breakfast. Yeah. So I, I knew Artie fairly well. I knew, I knew Paul. I had worked with him on. Um, I guess it was Hearts and Bones. Was oh yeah. That album was current okay. time, which is a wonderful record, which is kind of overlooked. Uh-huh. But a great record. Yeah. Do you, on that afternoon of the concert, do you actually remember the the incident? I've just always been very, very curious to ask somebody sure. about, you know, when somebody tried to take on uh, the stage and and uh, get to Paul Simon during the, you know, the track uh, you guys are playing, the late, great Johnny Ace, you know? Late, great Johnny Ace, yeah, that was, that was really, that's that's etched in my memory forever. In, Holy in cow. My, and, and in Paul's, too, I know, because I've talked to Paul since then about it. It's, it's strange. Was he re- in real danger, Rob? I don't think so. He was just a fan, right? Apparently the guy was kind of a crazed fan who might have been high. And <laughs> um, he's, I think I overheard, or maybe somebody told me, he, he ran up to Paul and tried to grab him, and he said, Paul, Paul, i got to talk to you. i got to talk to you. <laughs> and, and, the, uh, and, of course, the uh, security guys just jumped on him and threw him off stage head first. <laughs> Well, there's no better time to have a conversation than while he's in concert. I mean, exactly. You know. In the middle of a song. And, <laughs> and, um, and it's amazing. My, I have a 16-year-old son, uh, also named Paul, who's a big Paul Simon fan, actually uh-huh. a huge fan. And we were just watching that moment uh, on YouTube. You can find it on YouTube. Really? You can? Yeah. Hold on. Yeah, there's, you can see it, and you can see the guy run up to him. Wow. And you can see Paul, is, he, he steps back in shock. His... <laughs> He drops his right hand. His left hand never leaves the chord shape on the guitar. He loses a couple words in the line, and he steps back to the mic, and he finishes the song. Holy cow. Without dropping a beat. My son, Paul, was saying, what a pro he is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, looks kind of, he looks shaken up. You know, he look, and who wouldn't be? He's, yeah. he, he looks a little, like he's shaking a little bit, like the guy really tried to jump him, and... Um, but he, you know, he finished the song. And I remember somehow, maybe we were still working on Hearts and Bones or something. I was in the studio with Paul. And for some reason, we heard the recording of Late Great Johnny Ace. Wow. And when that moment came up in the song, uh, he looked at me and I looked at him. <laughs> he said, I always, I always just, I see that guy coming at me. Holy cow. When you get to that part of the song, I see the guy coming at me. I said, I know exactly what you mean. It's like a little post-traumatic stress disorder thing. Sure. Wow. And it was a very important part of the song, the last verse, mm-hmm. where they're talking about, um, 
he was walking through the park at Christmas and someone told him that John Lennon had died. Yeah. And they, they went to a bar. And the two of us went to this bar and we stayed to close the place. That's right where the guy came out. Wow. Two of us went to this bar and we stayed to close the place. And close the place got dropped that, because that's where the guy jumped the stage. Interesting. Wow. I can't listen to the song now without seeing that guy jump up there. And you probably never will be able to. You yeah. know, it'll probably be, always be etched in your mind. I guess not. But that was a fantastic occasion. And, and you know, being up on the stage early when, the, when it was still light in the sky, it was, it was a beautiful, beautiful September evening. And uh, there were over a half a million people there. Wow. I was just playing a little Prophet 5 with a couple of chorus pedals in series. Really? And and that's how I was playing little string parts and organ parts and all that stuff. And of course, of course, Richard T had all the important stuff and all the roads and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Two two drummers, uh, Steve Gadd and and uh, Grady Tate. Uh-huh. Wow. Um, so it was it was a it was a fantastic uh, event. You know, mm. it was a really iconic. Well, we encourage everybody to, to go check out on YouTube this uh, concert <laughs> in the park, not only for, the, for this incident, but uh, for the music of that live event, you know? Yeah, yeah, it was a wonderful, wonderful thing. Yeah. Well, time passed on really quickly, and, and for some reason, music started really shifting into gears, and all of a sudden, uh, by the time you know it, you've, uh, you're working with Ashford and Simpson on some disco stuff, mm-hmm. because, you oh, know, yeah. right around that time, you know, things were going so quickly, things were changing so much, you know? Yeah. Yeah, the Ashford and Simpson stuff was really earlier. I mean, I, I was working with them maybe 77, 78. Yeah. I started with them, and that, they're really wonderful people. I love them. And, and uh, they had a great kind of, uh, they had a great sort of business model going. They would um, do their own records, but also produce other artists like Gladys Knight and Diana Ross, and they would write all the songs, produce the tracks, and uh, just, just get the stars to sing on them. Yeah. So I did a lot of stuff with them, um, uh, or kind of orchestrations, kind of kind of Motown style orchestrations, uh, which I love doing. Yeah, and uh, that we had some. There's some wonderful stuff. There's a song called "Landlord" from from Gladys Knight and the Pips, which is one of my favorites that I did with them. Sure, um, and their own records. Um, so that was a, that was a great time. But it was it was a wonderful time to get involved in the recording business because it was such a vibrant industry right then yeah you know everybody wanted to make a record uh just recently the saturday night fever record had been you know the the biggest selling record (laughs) in history at that time right right right. everybody wanted to make a big record so it was you know there was a lot of work for musicians uh arrangers writers and musicians of all kinds orchestral musicians uh rhythm players and um and there was no MIDI, and there were there were no drum machines. Right. There were mm-hmm. there were no personal computers. There were there weren't really usable computers for music. There was there was just nothing that we had even five years after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, it was uh, that was a great time, and of course we didn't of course we didn't know what we had. We thought it would last forever. And, right. Um, we were we were wrong about that. You know, we we're, were talking uh, recently uh, with. Um, Steve Procaro, and a few interviews back, and we were talking about the first analog sense. And as you know, anything about Steve, he's just, he was just a huge uh, analog, you know, a cable guy, you know, sure. the cable guy uh, of, of of yesteryear. And he just mm-hmm. got so into serious programming, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Were you, were, how deep did you go with the analog sense before everything migrated over to MIDI? That was a that was a big part of what I did for a while. My first 
My first uh, instrument that I had was an ARP 2600, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which I bought on July 7th, 1977. <laughs> I, just, I, I know because it's 7777. Oh, I never wow. forgot that. And I was like schlepping it home in a cab and I That's had cool. my big, big handful of rainbow spaghetti cords, you know, right, yeah. set it up in my little tiny apartment and be figuring out how to make it do stuff. <laughs> you know, and I was also at that time, a big part of what we did was uh, TV commercials. Right. right. That was a very big uh, way for musicians to make a living. Sure. And uh, so I would um, kind of advertise myself as somebody who could do that. And at, at that time, the late 70s, you know, you'd bring the ARP 2600 and set it up in the control room, people would just be amazed. You'd just, you'd, you'd st- for maybe half an hour, you'd be plugging in rainbow patch chords, right? <laughs> and then at the end of all that, you'd, you'd play the keyboard and, the, and it would go doink. <laughs> right. And everybody would freak out. That's incredible. Yeah. Did you hear how it went doink? That was unbelievable. <laughs> we made it go doink. We made it go doink. And of course, it's like... <laughs> <laughs> of course, it's uh, you know it's it's a uh, monophonic. You know, you can make one sound at a time. It's, it won't memorize anything you've patched. It's, you just got to set it up again. <laughs> so um, there was there was very different. And then you know I went through a number of uh, there were generations of analog instruments after that, um, polyphonic instruments. Oh, like, yeah, like the polymog. Yeah, you know? exactly. And I did a lot of. There were some of us that did a lot of uh, disco records with a guy named Michael Zager, the Zager Love uh, Orchestra. Right, right, yeah. He had some huge dance record hits. Um, and there were a, a number of, I mean, they used to make a, an album every month. <laughs> a week to do basic tracks and a week to do overdubs and a week to mix it and master it and get it out the door, you know. It's, so it was really an assembly line. But it was it was uh, it was wonderful to be able to just you know get booked to play all the time, just show up and play and play and play and play. Yeah, really. Mm-hmm. Sight read and sight read and play and play and make things up and. You know. <laughs> so there was a real there was a real scene. Yeah. And uh, believe me, I we really really miss it. You know, it's it's really sad, and I, I have a lot of friends from that era. I was trying to mention before my old friend Jeff Miranoff, who's one of the great studio guitarists mm-hmm. in New York, keeps, keeps telling me that he's working on a book on the subject, yeah. the New York rhythm sections, and I, I really hope that happens. I've got to give him a call and tell him to finish that book. <laughs> um, that's, a, that's really a magical, you know, a gr- I've been so fortunate to play with great rhythm sections for 30 years, and yeah. it, that is a magical, magical, special musical thing. Well, we've, we've, we've talked to a lot of musicians here on Inside Music Cast that have, you know, expressed the same sentiment, how oh, yeah. you know, they're sad that, you know, you can't go to – Lee Sklar said it best, you know. He goes, I, I miss the times when you can go to a, um, you know, a, a real you know, a world-class facility, stu- you know, studio with a world-class engineer and play with all your, you know, all the best players in the world. Oh, and yeah. he said now, you know, he goes he, – he was saying, you know, on the other hand, you know, he still loves music and he's – you know, obviously everyone has to adapt. He goes, now instead of – that particular scenario, you know, you, you pack up your, you know, he packs up a bass, he travels over to a buddy's house, mm-hmm. plugs in, you know, into a Pro Tools system, lays his part down and goes home. You yeah. Know, and, and it's, you know. <laughs> Which is also okay, but it's, it's kind of lonely, too. Yeah, it is, yeah. There's a loneliness to it, and to, we call it doctor's appointments, you know, though. Right. Oh, yeah. Okay, now you come over and do your part, and now you do your part. 
Yeah. But but for for a rhythm section especially to sit down together. Yeah. And they're people that uh, that know each other, that have played together a lot before, um, and that have have worked on all different kinds of music. Um, you know, that's that's a really really special magical thing, and it's a it's a it's a real it's a special art form in itself. Mm-hmm. It's hard to it's hard to hard to describe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can I, I get what you're saying. I mean, it's, it's yeah. there's nothing about four or five guys sitting in one studio watching themselves, and you're not playing your instruments only. You're playing each other. You're playing each other's eyes and the rhythm and the body and everything. And it's uh, yeah, yeah. It's it's you're right. It's yeah. you're true. And, you're, and you're feeling what everyone else is doing, and and also playing to make what everybody else is doing work. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it just becomes this this. You don't really you don't really hear individual instruments anymore very much. You hear this one incredible animal. Yeah, it's one magnificent animal. <laughs> you know, it's. It's really it's it's really incredible. Yeah. Well, you know, your discography is is like a who's who, and, and I'm going to name some artists here for mm-hmm. our listeners who aren't familiar with all of the amazing artists that you've worked with over the years, and you know, folks like Natalie Cole and Steve Kahn and George Benson, Brian Wilson, Billy Joel, Diana Ross, Art Garfunkel, you know, John Mayall, Steve Winwood, Steely, you know, Steely Dan, Donald Fagan. And the list list goes on and on, but the, yeah. you know, there. I know this is going to be a difficult thing to to answer, but there must be unbelievable best moments in your musical life. Are there, can you think of any off the top of your head some some best moments? You know, like studio, particular studio sessions, or maybe some live performances you've been on that that just sort of uh, shine through. Uh, there, there are there are a lot of great ones. Um, I guess one of them. I guess one would have to be. Uh, Doing the horn arrangement for Babylon Sisters, mm-hmm. yeah, well, okay. for Steely Dan, and uh, it's kind of a famous thing. Donald wanted to use all these woodwinds in the horn section, and um, you may—I don't know if you've ever noticed this. There are two bass clarinets playing fifths. Okay, it's a, I'm right by the piano. Two bass clarinets. I, ju- I happen to be by the piano. Cool, cool, Let's cool. Let's go. Yeah, two bass clarinets playing fifths. George Marge and Wally Kane. George is not with us anymore. I I think Wally is, but I'm not sure. But that was Donald's idea, great idea. Mm -hmm. That I had written this uh, this horn arrangement. I mean, he has Donald would have some very strong ideas for some of it, and then ask me to just fill in the rest. Remember that we we played down that horn arrangement, and it was complicated. And there was something like nine people sitting out there. It was a strange group. It was. Alto flute, alto sax, one trumpet, two tenor saxophones, two bass clarinets. I forget exactly what it was. Wow. And Don, Donald came out, and he, he looked at the score, and he looked at the players, and he looked back through the glass at Gary Katz, and he shrugged, and he said, it's perfect. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I said, wow, I'm really glad you like it. You know, it's, but uh, for Donald to not change anything, was, that, was, that was pretty great. From what we understand, that is kind of a miracle. Yeah, it? it is a miracle. <laughs> In general, yeah, that didn't happen very often. I'm also very, I'm very proud of one bar in that arrangement, which was my little invention. It's right before the trumpet solo, it kind of goes, one. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You know, I worked for like, I think I worked for two hours on that bar. 
<laughs> Seriously, I was just just thinking, sitting. I know what I want it to feel like, and I what are the right notes? And I think I, I finally found it, but it it survived, so it must have been it must have been okay. Well, that was a masterpiece uh, arrangement that you had on Babylon Sisters. It really was. Um, well, it's it's an amazing song. It's a great. It's a fantastic record. And, and I'm sure that all of our listeners right now were basically going gaga over just that little uh, composition on that one bar alone. <laughs> yeah. I, just, I knew what belonged there I knew yeah. like what, it, what I wanted to feel like it was just it was I really think about it but you know sometimes you have to just polish that one little spot for quite a while yeah well if, if you don't mind let's spend some time I, we had some questions about Steely Dan and Donald Fagan in general and if you don't mind let's dive into that and it's sure. you know it's, it's really no secret that you know a lot of our listeners are hardcore Steely Dan Donald Fagan fanatics and uh, sure. obviously you worked on Gaucho and also on the Nightfly yeah. and uh I mean, just in a nutshell, tell us a little about working with Donald and Walter. Or, you know, of, of what we know, there's there's a good and bad that comes of working with them. And yeah. <laughs> so, how yeah. was it for you? It usually it was great. Um, uh, I, I love those guys. I think they're yeah. great. I mean, they are true eccentrics, and they, they'd be the first to admit that. And uh, you know, it, it was I generally worked more closely with Donald, uh-huh. uh, who would have you know, as I said, some strong direction about. I always think of. Uh, Time out of mind. Yeah. All that stuff. That's not. That's all Donald. I mean, Donald sang that stuff to me. Right. Uh, the other stuff, you know, was stuff that I that I had to event, invent. Mm-hmm. There were times when I almost felt uh, sorry, a little bit bad for them because they were trapped in a trapped in their own perfectionism to a a, a point that occasionally seemed to make them pretty unhappy. Interesting. Well, I know that they really were hearing what they said they were hearing. I mean, that stuff definitely was real. It was, it was just very, very. Uh, it was a very. They were operating on a very refined level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One famous story. I'll try to make this really brief. Was the recording the basic track for the song Gaucho, uh-huh. which is as you as you know, I'm sure is like it's an amazing uh, composition, which is. It has a long, long verse which never repeats any material. Right. There's nothing repetitive in the verse. It, it keeps kind of wandering around itself and doesn't repeat any parts of itself, which is very interesting. And then, uh, of course, a long instrumental section in the middle of the song. It's almost like another song. So the whole, whole composition is over six minutes long, I think. Yes. And we had a wonderful band at the old A&R A- A1 Studios in New York. With myself and Victor Feldman... Uh, Steve Kahn. That's right, that's right. Anthony Jackson uh, and uh, Jeff Percaro. Right. One of the greatest drummers of all of all time. Without a doubt, yes. <laughs> um, and we, I think the five of us played from about 12 noon to about 12 midnight. We must have played about 10, at least 10 complete takes to a click track. We're, we're mesmerized, Rob. Oh, okay. <laughs> we love these. Well, we love it, these stories. It an ama- it's an amazing story, and I'm sure it's been told by other people. But the piano part was was mostly very written out, mm-hmm. and I, I I added some little things to it. But it was mostly mostly Donald had notated it, and we all thought all the all the players thought that we really had it. You know, we, we thought we had numerous takes that sounded perfect to us. Right. We thought it was perfect. We were playing perfectly together. We were perfectly with the click. It was feeling great. We loved what we were doing. And we look in the control room, and Donald just has that kind of uh, 
that kind of curled lip had a little bit of a Dick Cheney sneer <laughs> from me. Uh, I don't know. You know, it's not. It isn't really quite. You know, I don't know. You know, they and they don't look happy. And Gary Katz looks unhappy because they don't look happy. Yeah, right. So finally, at midnight, they tell us, "Well, thanks, everybody. We're just we just won't include the song. We know what it's supposed to sound like, and it's a great effort." But we're going home. And we were so depressed. Uh, Victor Feldman actually went back to his hotel. He was in from out of town. And the other four of us, myself and Steve Kahn and Anthony Jackson and Jeff were so unbelievably depressed or bummed out. Gary Katz stayed. Yeah. We were lying on the floor in the, in the control rooms, just so bummed out. And we were, you know, we were, we were mad. We got mad. We decided we were going to keep going. Yeah. And until 4 a.m., from, from midnight till 4 a.m., we kept going and we did seven more takes to a click. We thought every one of them was perfect. We, we couldn't hear anything wrong with anything. Right, right. Yeah. A couple of, and, and we, you know, 4 a.m., we, we crept home. Jeff Percaro had a, had a Toto concert in Oklahoma later that day. I mean, he had to go straight to the airport. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, unbelievable. So... A couple days later, we get a message from Donald and Walter, which goes something like, hey, we really want to thank you guys for staying, and we think there might be something here we can use. Holy cow. Fantastic. So, you know, we're very happy, we're excited. And then I hear later, um, I've, I've talked to Gary Katz about this, they, they went to all of those takes, maybe all 17 of them, uh, or however many there were, and they, they started cutting the two-inch master. This is a two-inch, 24-track analog master, right? Yeah, sure. splicing it, yeah. They're splicing it, and they, and they cut it. First, I heard in at least 10 places, I think Gary told me it was more like 20 edits. Jeez. They cut those takes, and then, and then, erased everything but the drums, because all of that was just to get a drum track. Oh, my God. Some, something that we didn't know at the time. And then later on, we came back. I think Anthony's bass stuff was replaced by Walter, who played bass on it. They <laughs> called me back. They, I, I, I worked on the piano stuff again for another five-hour five hour overdub session and then three hours to do some electric piano stuff. Uh, uh, Donald plays the real funky stuff behind the tenor. Yeah. The other stuff is me. And, and Steve Kahn came back to redo the guitar stuff. I think he spent three or four hours doing that. And that's how they eventually got there. And this is the track Gaucho you're talking about, right? This, this is the track Gaucho, yeah. Wow, that's intense. That's amazing. <laughs> and all they wanted was the drum track. And that, that was all for the drum track. Mm. Interesting. Which, I mean, and they all sounded perfect to all of us anyway. I mean, we're talking Jeff Percaro here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Playing to a click. Interesting. It's not going to wander far if it wanders at all, and uh, yeah, it's uh, so you know that was that was hard for me to understand. That was I think eight, 1982. Now later on, you know, then we got into sequencing and MIDI and computer controlled stuff, and um, then I you know I I don't know I kind of drifted away from from them or they drifted away from me and I I don't know um, how Donald really adapted yeah. to that. Um, I, re I do remember having a like a standalone sequencer like a Yamaha QX something or others this black box yeah. where you can sequence by typing in 
the notes individually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had this tiny little window, and I was demonstrating it for Donald, and he was he was amazed. He thought, "Oh, this is really this. There's something immoral about this." <laughs> Punching in your own. <laughs> well, you shouldn't be able to have this much control over a performance, you know. Yeah. But uh-huh. of course, it was what he lusted after, and what all all control freaks kind of, you know, are always pursuing. Yeah. That kind of. Um, that kind of control of every detail. Sure. Yeah. Perfect timing. Yes. Yeah. Well, well, you know, after after all of that, just just I, I can't imagine. That was one track we're talking about, and mm-hmm. and all of the time and effort. I was thinking to myself, no wonder they took twenty years off in between albums. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> I feel like maybe they were almost just so burned out by their own process. It was maybe so. Was too much, and you, I'm sure you've heard the story about the the song second arrangement. The, the, the yes. The lost song that was uh, re, uh, was erased, accidentally yeah. erased. Yeah, that's right. I, I don't know where I got it, but I have, I have, I have that. I have that song. It was, it was somebody had made a cassette version of it or something. Uh, okay. And I've, I've heard it. I, I don't, you know, I. It wasn't a very good quality recording, but I know it floats around out there somewhere. Well, you're not supposed to have that. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to cut this part out of the interview. <laughs> yes, yeah, I'm after you. But I remember the song. And years later, I saw Donald, and I was I was singing to him the song. There was some stuff. Uh, so I run to the second arrangement, mm-hmm. the home of a mutual friend, and he, he cracks up laughing. I said, "What's so funny?" He said, "Those are not. Those were dummy lyrics." He said, "Those were not going to be the lyrics." But I had. You know, I thought they were. I thought, I thought they were great. Yeah. Too. Like I thought the dummy lyrics were great. Said, no, God. those aren't the real lyrics. So okay, fine. I don't. You know. Yeah. yeah <laughs> well, that was a great story, uh, Rob. Thanks for sharing that, that with us. Cool. That was very cool. Hey, we've got a question. Uh, we'll move on from uh, Steely Dan and Donald, but um, we've got a question from one of our correspondents, uh, Mikhail Ingstrom, and actually uh, an Inside Music Cast listener, uh, Henrik Hansen, has the same sort of thought. They both wanted to know that you know about you know you've worked on several wonderful projects with Michael Franks for your Flying yeah. Monkey Production Studio, and ha- how did you two first meet, and, and was uh, Passion Fruit your first collaboration with him? Well, I, I played with him on a previous record called uh, Objects of Desire, which was produced by Michael, not Michael Kaskuna. I'm sorry, I just blanked on his name. Hmm. Shoot. I'm just, like, so, many, so few brain cells are left. A <laughs> uh, uh, great guy who was producing, who produced several albums with him. But I, I, um, I was just playing, just booked as a player with him. And then I, I think I ended up doing a couple little arrangements or something. And then Michael called me and, and asked me to produce his, his next record, which was Passion Fruit, which was the first album that I ever produced. So I was, I was really thrilled that he asked me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's, uh, and, um, that's still a, a pretty popular record of his. I and mean, that's one of his more popular records in his catalog, mm-hmm. which is a long catalog. I did that with him, and then we did two more, which are called uh, Skin Dive and The Camera Never Lies. Right, right. right. Which are uh, just amazing albums to start with. Do you know that, by the way, that uh, Passion Fruit, uh, you can still get that on Amazon for 80, oh, yeah. bu- 80 bucks? <laughs> you mean the LP or something? The yeah, vinyl? the CD. Yeah, you can you can still find a CD. I think the price right now is right around 80 well, bucks. Well, it's probably because it's, it's probably out of print. Of course. It's yeah. probably an import. Really? The CD is 80 bucks? Jeez. Yeah, I think you can you can find them still yeah, on there. That must be an import. Yeah. yeah. Must be something, but 
I think I have a couple of those. Maybe I should list them. Because you know? <laughs> I'm a little short. I'm a little short till the weekend. You know, I could list them. <laughs> that's, that's the place to get some money. But you mentioned a couple, um, you know, albums. Um, mm-hmm. uh, read my, uh, let's see now, uh, this, uh, The Camera Never Lies, which uh-huh. was an amazing album because you had some really cool players. I mean, Marcus Miller's uh, bass lines on Read My Lips was strictly phenomenal, you know? Yeah, I love Marcus. You know, He's an amazing cat. During this time, you know, when, you know, you were using technology, you know, for a lot of these recordings with Michael for Skin Dive and, and mm-hmm. The Camera Never Lies, would, yeah. were you blending? I mean, would you record, like, let's talk about uh, bass lines specifically. Mm-hmm. Would you mix the the live playing with the, you know, electronic basses and play the synth bass yourself? Or how did, how did you typically mix the bass lines? Well, it was different. It was different on different tracks. And, mm-hmm. you know, this was really early. This was very early technology. Yeah. And I felt like, you know, Michael and I both wanted to explore it. And I knew that I wanted to explore it. There's very little of that on uh, Passion Fruit. Yeah. It's a little bit. Sure. There's a little bit of the Roland Jupiter 8, you know, right. playing some special stuff and turning the tape upside down and recording stuff backwards and stuff like that. But uh, then the next two, Skin Dive and Passion Fruit, uh, uh, the camera never lies. We were experimenting more with technology, but it, it really was a very, uh, I don't know. I, I look back on it now. I, I, I don't feel that it was wonderfully successful because it was just so early. Yeah. Uh, and we weren't really ready. Well, I so, I sort of looked beyond the technology in a way. I mean, it, it worked it, musically. It was they were well written. I mean, everything fit really nicely. I, I don't really ever because see, I was really totally immersed in those two albums, and I really got into it. And I'm sort of keep, wow. I'm a keyboardist myself, but yeah. but uh, I could see what you were doing. I really could with everything, and it all fit. It all jived with each other, and uh, so it, it it was a neat sound for Michael. Yeah, thanks. Well, it was it was a you know it was we were thinking it out as careful as we as we could and and um, there's a famous track um, called Sunday Morning Here with You. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. one and it's got this. I did a lot of stuff with a Fairlight. I used to have an old Fairlight. Sure. It's one computer instrument. You know, it's a strange, strange instrument. Oh, it was uh, um, very expensive too. <laughs> it's very expensive. It belonged to a commercial uh, uh, commercial music company that I worked with and it belonged to them, but they let me use it. Um, so I had samples of steel drums and, and bird calls and uh, so forth. And I, you know, I was, uh, it was, it was kind of experimental. You know, I was trying to do something very, um, unusual and, and atmospheric. Yeah, and that was the right tool for it at that time because it was followed up, you know, right after that with the Synclavier. And, uh, right. and it was big, expensive uh, machines, but they did beautiful. They had yeah. nice sounds, didn't they? They did special stuff that you couldn't do that had never been done before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, speaking of your sound, you know, um, Rob, you know, when we when people talk about the Rob Mounsey's sound, you know, <laughs> it might be a tough question, but I, I don't want to pinpoint you to anything because you're, you're so versatile as to the things that you do. But when a client uh, or, in uh, you know, um, somebody comes to you and say, look, I, I need uh, help with this writing or I have this new artist, what are they looking for when they come to you? I mean, I just, you know, what what do you provide for them that Rob Mounsey can, can give them that somebody else that another producer might not be able to well i i don't i don't i'm not sh- i'm not it depends on what they've heard yeah probably i'm for instance you know i've been this year i've been doing a lot of big um symphony pops concerts with a wonderful singer named adina menzel oh yeah adina was the star of of wicked on broadway mm-hmm. she won tony for that she was 
She was in Rent. She has a part on the TV show Glee. Right. Um, and we've been doing Pops concerts all over the country. Uh, and it's been really, really fun. She's fantastic. Yeah. But I, I did all of her, you know, uh, symphonic arrangements. Right. And go and, and rehearse that stuff with those orchestras, great orchestras all over the, all over the place. Yeah. Um, so... You know that was that was part of what I always wanted to do, and and I love doing the the big orchestral arrangements. You mentioned Natalie Cole earlier. I did a lot of that that stuff with her, um, and some some other people. Um, if they call me, they might be aware of that orchestral writing, right? Which there aren't that many people that do it. Well, you mentioned Edina, and I was—I had the pleasure of, of seeing her show, her performance on, uh, on Broadway. Um, amazing, a phenomenal singer. In fact, uh, if I recall, uh, just a few months back, uh, you guys were here in Indianapolis performing with the Indianapolis Symphony. That's right. Yeah, you were here. And, At uh, the, uh, what's that theater? The, the, that's a great little theater. Yeah, it's the Hilbert Circle the Theater. The Hilbert Circle Theater, right, that's you, right. Yeah, you performed, and you got rave reviews here, and, and yeah, I believe sold you're— out. Yeah, it was completely sold out, and you're touring with her. Is that uh, all the way till the end of the year still, aren't you? We have, I think, uh, 20 more shows until the end of 2011, yeah. Mm -hmm. We're all over the place. Spokane, Washington, back in Newark, New Jersey, Nashville, uh, Las Vegas, um, San Diego, uh, Houston. Yeah. So we've been all over the place, and uh, she's her fans really turn out for her. Oh, they do. And, uh, and she's wonderful. And she's 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 wonderful on stage too. She's very loose. She's very she's very funny on stage. Uh, every show's different. She you know is very relaxed with the audience. It's it's really wonderful. So is the material she's doing is it part of her uh, latest uh, sort of a mini EP that she has? Uh, uh, the recording the last. Uh, what kind of music are you performing with her? Well, we're hoping to we're hoping to record some of the symphonic music, but uh-huh. we you know we do some. A couple of songs from Wicked. We do some some things from Rent, yeah, um, and then just some other stuff that we just like to do. She she had a wonderful idea, kind of a left turn idea to combine um, the standard Love for Sale with uh, the Police song Roxanne. Wow, interesting. That's interesting. So, yeah, two songs about hookers, basically. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but they're but they're but they're very emotional. Um, songs right. with with sort of a, a kind of a sadness to them, and uh, so we made a big kind of a symphonic medley out of these two things, which which uh, which seems to really grab people. Um, yeah, and uh, and you know, there's really a variety of stuff. It's uh, she does some of her Barbara Streisand type stuff. She does a funny girl and and uh, a little bit of swing stuff, um, and and it's you know it's a, it's a wonderful show. Yeah. It's a lot of kind, different kinds of music, and she's a great entertainer. Well, that's very cool. Hey, Rob, I want to switch gears, and I want to talk to you quickly about uh, your friend Steve Kahn. Now, Steve has been a guest on Inside Music Cast before, mm-hmm. and um, I know you guys are good friends, and you've collaborated in the past on many projects, and you work closely together. Yeah. So I shot uh, Steve a message today, and I said, hey, Steve, uh, I've got Rob Mouncey uh, on the show tonight. We're going to be interviewing him. And uh, since you guys are so close, uh, would you mind saying a few words about Rob and your relationship together over the years? And, uh, you know, being short notice, I I didn't think he would be able to uh, get anything to me quickly enough, but he did. And um, as a matter of fact, he wrote me back right away (laughs) and he said, uh, he goes, you know, I've got a lot to say um, and uh, so I'm just going to say it. So he recorded himself 
a little uh, tribute to you uh, about your friendship. And um, without further ado, here it is, Steve Kahn. For me, Rob Mounsey is everything that the word musician should represent. He has every possible musical talent imaginable. And when you couple that with his immense technological knowledge, you have someone who is ready to meet any challenge. Rob has been a huge part of the production of my four most recent recordings, The Green Field, 2005, Borrowed Time, 2007, The Suitcase, 2008, and now Parting Shot, in 2011. He also played beautifully on both Borrowed Time and Parting Shot. I can't easily express how grateful I am to Rob for all his wisdom, his sense of calm, and his help. Without him, I don't believe that these recordings could have been produced to the level of quality that we both believe in so strongly. Together, we have made two very special recordings, Local Color in 1987 and You Are Here in 1998. When Local Color was nominated for a Grammy in the New Age category, I kind of bristled at that, but looking back, that music was somewhere between world music, jazz, and New Age. Labels are really only for business and marketing people anyway. Some 10 years later, when we embarked upon the journey to what became You Are Here, we had a much better sense of what we could accomplish as a duo. And for me, in every aspect, that recording best represents our unique musical relationship. Rob's playing, singing, composing, and orchestrating on that recording are just masterful. And the sounds that he created, which were beautifully represented by engineer Malcolm Pollock, make it a spectacular-sounding CD. Over the course of our two recordings, we never had a serious disagreement, nor a single argument. My joke amongst friends and fans alike is always that, quote, you can tell which passages Rob wrote because you can sing them. Otherwise, you know that I was the one who thought of it. Sad, but true. Beyond anything to do with music, I consider Rob to be a dear, dear friend, and I value that friendship more and more with the passing of each year. Congratulations, Rob, on your interview for Inside Music Cast. Oh, gee, that's so nice. Well, you know, he's he's a fantastic guy, and he's really a good buddy. And um, it's 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 uh, he's a he's a really special uh, musician too, because I I think Steve is always uh, he spent so much he has so such a a focus on finding really what his own voice is. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, in that sense, he and I are really different. I mean, I tend to kind of be a chameleon doing all kinds of different things for all kinds of different people and all these different genres. And, uh-huh. you know, sometimes I feel, uh, I'm certainly extremely unfocused compared to him, but, you know, he's got that laser focus yeah. on mm-hmm. it, the way that he wants to play, the, the sound that he wants his instrument to have, the sounds that he wants his records to have. Um, this new record is really, really gorgeous. I don't know if you've listened to it. The Parting Shot? Or, yeah. Has, has it gotten to you yet? Or? Well, no, it's, he's actually going to be sending me a copy, but I was going to mention that um, for the, everyone listening, uh, it, it, it's already out in Japan. It came out April 20th. It, uh-huh. comes out, it actually comes out in the States tomorrow. Tomorrow's release day. Uh, okay. Well, you're actually going to be hearing this later, but April 26th was the release date for USA. And supposedly it's coming soon to Europe. Great, yeah, it's it's a fabulous record, and and um, you know he's continuing to explore um, his his fascination with Latin music, especially uh, which he's he's very dedicated to now, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. has has 
you know, really learned a lot about, and really he's he's given so much energy and brain power to it and musicality to it. Uh, he's certainly taught me a lot about it. it. It's always great taking these trips with him. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a really good buddy. And as usual, he's too, he's too nice to me, but I, I appreciate that. You know, back in 98, you and Steve uh, connected on a pretty amazing album project called You Are Here. And I want to take a break and play one of my favorite tracks from that album. Uh, this is a track called Peanut Soup.
Well, you know, standing back and seeing the balance of types of work that you're doing now as opposed to your early years, are you, are you enjoying one type of music or one type of project over another? I mean, what is still the center of your musical passion? Uh, it's, I can't tell. Yeah. I can't tell. I don't know, I don't know what the center is. Um, I've, been, I've been working on a little independent film um, that I've just been doing on my own. It's this crazy little electronic score, and I, I've been having a lot of fun with that, aside from the fact that, that I'm lonely. I'm there by myself most of the time looking at a bunch of blinking lights, you know. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's, that's not the best part of it, but that's really been fun. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to doing some uh, arrangements for uh, great singer Sophie Millman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. First, she's a wonderful singer uh, from uh, Toronto, I believe. That uh, I'm looking forward to doing some stuff with her that's uh, kind of in the, in the more traditional jazz orchestration area. Mm-hmm. Which uh, you know, that's that's really a, a, always a it's always a wonderful challenge. I mean, that's a little scary every time. Yeah. yeah. To try to find, to try to be be part of that idiom and yet try to bring something fresh to it without taking yourself out of that frame. And so, um, as long as there are challenges left, it's still fun. Yeah, and that and that precisely is what's going to is what's going to keep you basically, uh, Rob, in the forefront and interest and in demand for the the kind of work that you do. You know, mm-hmm. we've appreciated the time that you've spent with us. We've covered a lot of ground, and you know what? There's so still so much more to talk to. We have we we haven't really discussed you know your your solo work, but I mm-hmm. encourage our listeners to uh, to go to to robmounsey dot com uh, and. Uh, and to listen to your music that you have that you've created on your on the personal level, and I, I think you'll find a lot of jewels. Well, Rob, thanks so much for spending time with us. It's it's been great. And and uh, and for more information, you have a website, correct? It's robmouncy.com. That's it. Okay. Thank, thank you so much. It's really been fun. All right. Well, take care, and let's catch up again sometime. Okay. Thanks a lot. All right. Bye bye. Thanks again. Special thanks to Rob Mouncy for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Also, very special thanks to Inside Music Cast correspondents Scott Gross, Brian Pearson, Kim Riley, Max Zabe, Upe Reith, and Mikhail Ingstrom. And please visit our website at InsideMusicCast.com, where you can catch up on all of our past interviews, read the Inside Opinion blog, and check out additional bonus content. Inside Music Cast is also on Facebook, where you can become a fan and join in on music conversation with Inside Music Cast fans from around the world. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast.